0: Today on the Sunshine Economy, the trouble with Florida's housing market.
1: Housing is where we're at right now. It's the biggest crisis in this country, to my mind.
0: Parts of Florida are consistently ranked as some of the most unaffordable places to live with a combination of low incomes and high housing costs.
1: In the course of the pandemic, we've seen prices soaring and rents also on a hike. So we're not really faced with an emergency rather than a crisis.
0: I'm Tom Hudson. Today on the Sunshine Economy, the author of the book, Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. He spent months living and speaking with people living in motels and encampments in Florida to understand what he calls Florida's housing crisis. It's ahead after the news. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Barely a week goes by without some kind of survey or ranking showing how expensive it can be to live in Florida, especially in the large metropolitan areas like South Florida. Monthly rents are rising faster in Miami, Orlando, and Tampa than almost any other part of the country. While the pandemic initially had landlords hitting pause on rent hikes, monthly rates have shot higher as eviction moratoriums have expired and demand has shot up. COVID-19 did not interrupt what has become almost a decade of rising home prices, either. The usual drivers of Florida real estate, sunshine and no income taxes, Coupled with the movement to work from anywhere and historically low interest rates for those who qualify have fueled a fury of home buying, driving up prices. While the cost of housing continues getting more expensive, incomes have not kept pace. The average price of an existing condominium in Miami is up 24 percent over the past year. The average price of a single family home in South Florida now is close to a half million dollars. Housing affordability is and has been a challenge in parts of Florida for years.
1: Housing is where we're at right now. It's the biggest crisis in this country, to my mind.
0: That's Andrew Ross. He has studied and reported on Florida's housing situation for a number of years. He's professor of social and cultural analysis at New York University. He spent time among Floridians without permanent housing, staying in rundown extended-stay motels, where residents don't have to come up with a first and last month's security deposit and they can pay by the week. He also joined people without any home in encampments, often barely hidden from tourist attractions and daily commutes. Ross is the author of the new book, Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. The book concentrates on the housing problems and the people affected by it around Orlando, and what he found there resonates here. What do you think Florida's current housing market tells us about the national housing market?
1: Housing markets are very local and um, and they can look a lot different, even across different parts of uh, a metro area. That said, we do have a national housing crisis. It's actually a global housing crisis. There's, there's nowhere really it, it doesn't affect right now. And in the course of the pandemic, we've seen prices soaring. and and rents also on a hike, surprisingly. Uh, So we're not really faced with an emergency rather than a crisis because the eviction moratoriums have more or less terminated. I chose to look at uh, the central Florida housing situation in particular, because I know the area I've worked there before. And also during the time I was doing my reporting, uh, it was the worst place in America to find affordable housing, you know, for low income people, which is somewhat surprising for New Yorkers like myself. Central Florida actually is is less (laughs) affordable than New York City right now in terms of rents. And uh, South Florida is not far behind. So it's a good lens through which to look at the housing crisis. But of course, there are Florida characteristics that are not unique, but certainly are special, you know, that have to do with statewide legislation and also, of course, the impact of the tourism and hospitality industry.
0: Define the crisis. When we talk about a housing crisis, when you talk about a housing emergency, what does that mean exactly?
1: Well, the simplest way for me to put it is people's income does not match their capacity to find housing that uh, is affordable to them. We've seen prices rising far out of proportion to any income gains. We've seen a bottleneck in housing supply and a rise in rentership over the last decade, which has been really quite pronounced and a corresponding decline in in homeownership. The stabilizing factors in the housing market for decades have become a little bit unmoored and unanchored. And that's one of the reasons why things are out of whack, as it were.
0: (laughs) Florida is a story of real estate, especially here in South Florida. Carl Fisher developing Miami Beach, George Merrick and Coral Gables, Addison Meisner and Palm Beach and Boca Raton. Uh, You know, there was that idea back in the early 20th century of selling land by the gallon in South Florida. How does that history, do you think, resonate in today's Florida real estate market?
1: things haven't changed that much uh, as far as I can see. I mean, you know, the the state back in the 1920s, the state decided not to collect income tax or taxes on inheritance. And so local governments really depend for their revenue upon growth, development, housing growth, and the revenue that's generated by property taxes. That's a formula that uh, That was set in motion by that decision back in the 1920s. And of course, uh, Florida continues to be a a huge draw, not just for retirees, but also for economic fugitives from the Frost Belt looking for uh, the easy life, (laughs) as it were.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I'd add, I'd add for South Florida, capital flight from unstable or just outright unfriendly. Political regimes in Latin America.
1: That is a big factor. And it's something I do do touch upon quite centrally in the book. Corporate investment and overseas investment in the housing market, not just in South Florida, but also Central Florida. The vacation home rental market is a big uh, draw for people with a lot of money looking to park it somewhere. We see that also in New York City. A lot of luxury high-rises with, with empty floors, completely empty floors. There are 350,000 apartments currently in New York City lying vacant. There's a comparable situation in Central and South Florida because of that, uh, the degree of uh, corporate and overseas investment in housing.
0: This focus on growth for Florida. Modern Florida has been a story of population growth, capital growth uh, as people move to the area or uh, at least visit the area part-time and bring their money with them and look for areas for investment. How is that driving and where is that taking housing?
1: Well, it's certainly to some large degree driving the housing market But the unfortunate impact is on, you know, local populations and local residents who are just not seeing the income gains that allow them to keep up with the rising prices.
0: Is that a then comment that essentially the job market, as we would think about it geographically, is a lot smaller than the housing market that we would think about geographically in terms of the supply and demand Factors within the job market, how somebody can negotiate or look for higher income versus in the real estate market, the pool of buyers is so much larger and thus allowing for more uh, pricing pressures? I would agree with that. I mean, mostly. Um, And in fact, uh, Florida
1: voters who had the chance to vote last year's um, proposition, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Uh, demonstrates that this is something people feel quite strongly about. I don't think the Tallahassee legislature feels so strongly about it. they pushed back for many, many, many years against uh, that particular measure passing. But it's not simply an issue of, of supply and demand, I think, or being out of sync with the labor market. The biggest problem seems to be that our existing model of housing delivery through the existing market system, has failed quite miserably and chronically over the last few decades to actually provide affordable housing. I mean, that's that's basically the conclusion I reached in my book, at least from my reporting on, on Central Florida.
0: That's Andrew Ross. He's author of Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. Ross will be participating in the Miami Book Fair 2021 later this month. Still to come, how the supply of housing in Florida is affecting affordability.
1: There's a lot of development going on. It's just, uh, it's not the right kind of housing that's being built. It's out of uh, sync with local needs.
0: We're back on the Sunshine Economy here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Today, we're featuring a conversation with Andrew Ross. He is the author of Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. He'll be participating in the Miami Book Fair later this month. Ross has studied and written about Florida real estate for years. He has witnessed the housing boom and bust, investors swooping in, local governments opening up new lands for housing, and real estate developers pushing boundaries and zoning to build new homes, condominiums, and apartments. Housing affordability is a complex calculation, but it starts with the fundamental economic force of supply and demand. We spoke with Ross from his office at New York University. How do you define the supply of homes available in Florida?
1: The problem is is not that houses are not being built. There are parts of the country, especially in California, where there is a chronic lack of supply. Florida, a little less, though. There's a lot of development going on. It's just, uh, it's not the right kind of housing that's being built. It's out of uh, sync with local needs. How so? Well, the housing is really needed is is what's often referred to as the missing middle. These are housing forms that traditionally, you know, provided affordable uh, shelter for people. And developers and builders don't find that kind of... um, construction to be particularly lucrative. They're following the market, they're following the profit, and the profit is in much bigger houses, the the ever-expanding single-family home, which in general is out of the reach of, of workforce needs and workforce income in most parts of the state.
0: That missing middle that you talk about sometimes is referred to as workforce housing, looking at median incomes and what can those median incomes afford. In a housing market, here in South Florida, in Dade County, Broward County, Palm Beach County, the average single-family home is uh, priced about a half a million dollars, well out of reach based upon an average salary, an average income. So what are those economic forces at play, Andrew, that builders aren't seeing a margin in providing that kind of workforce, middle market Housing unit.
1: Well, I guess the simple answer is that there's a product that's more attractive and more profitable, as long as the market can bear that product and is producing returns on it. Then, then builders and developers uh, aren't very easily incentivized to build anything else. And I would add, I think you know, part of the problem is that we, a lot of the solutions, the the so-called solutions to the housing crisis, uh, involve providing more sugar to developers and builders. And we've seen that formula for several decades and it it really hasn't worked.
0: What's the sugar?
1: The sugar are all sorts of uh, incentives and subsidies that uh, the federal government or the state can provide for builders, you know, to get them into the affordable housing game.
0: Like tax credits, for instance?
1: Tax credits are probably the most most common, yes. And quite frankly, they, they haven't really worked. Faced with this particular crisis, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to continue to work that formula. Instead, we ought to be looking at at non-market remedies, non-market
0: fixes. What are some of those non-market fixes that would address the supply side? We've seen a lot of renewed conversation on Capitol
1: Hill about restarting public housing programs. We've seen a lot of interest in Community land trusts and limited equity cooperatives, which are ownership alternatives, ownership options that are not speculative in nature. In other words, a guarantee the affordability of housing uh, for the long run. In general, they, they, they fall under the rubric of what in Europe is called social housing. Even in Canada, it's it's a term that's less used in this country, but is becoming more and more current. It includes a, a a broad spectrum, but in addition to, to rental housing, public rental housing also includes home ownership options that are affordable.
0: Developers uh, here in South Florida and the real estate industry generally will point to a lack of land that has constrained supply here, particularly in South Florida, squeezed between the Everglades and the Atlantic Ocean. How does... The availability of land in a soggy and wet environment that is Florida overall, how is that affecting supply? It is
1: a factor, and that's why, you know, urban growth boundaries are always being, you know, extended and expanded. There's a lot of pressure in South Florida to extend the urban growth boundary into the Everglades. And in in central Florida, the urban growth boundaries have been extended into the east onto environmentally fragile lands. The whole reason, the whole rationale for urban growth boundaries is to keep building more compact in a higher density format inside the urban growth boundary. But as long as builders and developers favor the production of single family homes, you know, with quarter acre lots or substantial lots, then you're not going to have that density, which most uh, urban advocates favor producing more compact sustainable housing development inside an urban growth boundary so you don't need land to do that necessarily you do need political will to encourage uh, the densification of building and you you do need to shift the mentality of the real estate industry around that these are the major challenges
0: Andrew, I want to ask you about one other force that's certainly in play in Central Florida, where you did your reporting for your book, Sun Belt Blues, and also here in South Florida, which is vacation rentals, short-term vacation rentals, Airbnbs and, and VRBOs. Those have been pointed to anecdotally as soaking up housing supply from particularly the rental market. Uh, what's your experience? Any evidence of that? There are quite a few studies
1: nationwide of the impact on on rising rents uh, when you have a critical mass of short-term rental housing in any neighborhood or any location. That's not surprising if you think about it. But what I did find was that in Osceola County, which is a focus of, of the book, it brands itself as a vacation home capital of the world, has a huge concentration of vacation home rentals. I found that builders and developers were favoring uh, that kind of product. They were sort of fatally attracted to building more and more vacation homes because they're they're very lucrative, and they weren't interested in developing other kinds of housing products, especially the more affordable ones. So I couldn't confirm that the vacation homes were a factor in rising rents, but I could certainly. Uh, confirmed that uh, it was it was having an impact on builders and developers
0: and even sometimes the perception of soaking up supply is enough to help drive prices, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. There's a psychology there. That's Andrew Ross. He's author of Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. He'll be participating in the Miami Book Fair 2021 later this month. Still to come on our program now, the demand side of Florida's increasingly unaffordable housing market.
1: A lot of these folks, they don't belong to the well-heeled retiree class. They are economic fugitives coming because they've heard that jobs are plentiful, especially in the tourism and hospitality industry. So there's a lot of demand there. There's no question. (laughs)
0: I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening and supporting public media. The lure of Florida has been an enduring force that continues shaping the state. More people moving to Florida is so important that the state government's own economic research agency declared in 2020, quote, population growth is the state's primary engine of economic growth, fueling both employment and income growth, end quote. It's an important reminder when thinking about how policymakers may address the challenge of housing affordability. Any solutions to increasingly unaffordable homes and apartments would have to balance the need for population growth with Florida's fragile environment, choked transportation systems, and squeezed geography shaped by water. The only break on Florida's persistent generations-long population growth – has been real estate. The housing collapse and Great Recession interrupted years of migration to Florida, but only for a short time. The pandemic has not paused the population trends. Over the past decade, South Florida's population has grown by about 10%. Osceola County in Central Florida has grown by almost 40%, making it the fastest growing county in the state. Andrew Ross has seen this sharp and sustained increase in demand on housing close up, he is the author of Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. How do you define the demand for housing in Florida?
1: If you look at the the numbers of people who are still pouring into the region, central Florida is a thousand people, a thousand new arrivals every week. That's been the case for the last 50 years or so.
0: And so if you figure an average household size of three people, that's over 300 housing units needed a week. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's a challenge for
1: municipalities and counties who are, you know, struggling to house a population. And a lot of these folks are not well healed you know, they don't belong to the well healed retiree class. They are economic fugitives coming because they've heard that jobs are plentiful, especially in the tourism and the hospitality industry. A lot of them end up either homeless or living in motels or really struggling to find a roof over their heads. So there's a lot of demand there. There's no question.
0: Yeah, a lot of demand. And we already talked about the constraints on some of the supply side. So how are the market forces responding to this demand of several hundred people per day moving into Florida, moving into different regions around Florida? It
1: puts a lot of pressure on and local authorities, counties, and, and, and cities, to give a green light to what is often thought of as unsustainable development patterns. Sprawl is the is the short term word for that. Faced with the kind of ecological crisis we're also challenged with at the moment, it, we, we you know we're really really dicing with death. There, you look at any region or location in Florida, and you'll find that struggle going on communities really having great difficulty uh, housing incoming populations in, in a sustainable way. And that goes back to this issue of the urban growth boundaries being extended whenever influential developers or landowners outside of those boundaries make a pitch to local officials.
0: And it's not just the demand for residential units on that land its demand for industrial uses, warehouse uses, even solar farms have been located in some of this land outside these development boundaries.
1: Yeah, it's an old story in every county. Every county that actually has decided to set an urban growth boundary, it gets revised pretty quickly because the local officials are under a lot of pressure from either from donors, developer donors, or under pressure from their budget managers to increase revenue by extending the boundary.
0: Uh, You mentioned when talking about supply, it's particularly that middle market supply, the workforce housing supply uh, that's been really pinched here in Florida. On the demand side, what types of communities are experiencing this imbalance in demand for housing units, and what types of units?
1: In central Florida and Osceola County in particular, which my book is mostly about, the housing shortage there isn't necessarily a middle-class problem. Households that are earning maybe $50,000 or so uh, can find affordable housing. It's people who are in that lower income bracket who are struggling in locations that have a large number of those people uh, a large working class population, uh, obviously you're going to see the crunch that is most acute. That's basically what I was drawn towards reporting on uh, in my book because that seems to be where the biggest challenge is.
0: Andrew, I recently looked at uh, Florida population growth over the past decade based upon age and probably not a surprise to most people that the fastest growing uh, age group in Florida is 65 plus. Uh, And across all age groups, we're seeing population growth except for middle age, Uh, this area of uh, the population that tend to be in the middle of their income earning years and oftentimes are also in the middle of their family rearing years. What role do you think housing is playing in that possibility? That's an interesting
1: question. Do you mean Florida is a less attractive location for people who fit that profile?
0: It just struck me that when we look at Florida population growth across the board, uh, ages are growing except for middle age. We're seeing flat to slightly a slight decline in the number of Floridians here who are in their you know upper thirties to uh, to upper forties.
1: Yeah. I wonder whether that's been significantly different in earlier decades. Florida has, uh, there there are certainly counties and and cities in Florida that have struggled to attract uh, high wage employers. Central Florida has struggled with that for a long, long time. Orlando Metro has the lowest medium wage of any metro area in in the country. It's a, not necessarily an attractive uh, draw for for people that are looking for decent livelihoods and well-paying livelihoods and perhaps are in the middle of their careers.
0: That's Andrew Ross, author of Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. He'll be participating in the Miami Book Fair later this month. Still to come, some of the people who are living on the edge of homelessness in motels in Florida.
1: People spend a good bit of time sitting out there. In the corridor, Uh, there's very little room in their own rooms. The corridor is often full of people sitting in chairs or leaning over the banisters. If they're not working or it's after hours, it can be quite crowded.
0: We're back on the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks as always for listening and supporting public media. Homelessness in Florida has been improving. In 2007, 48,000 people were living in Florida without a permanent home, according to data from the federal government. That had been cut almost in half by 2020. Most of those living without a home are adult men. A more detailed look at homelessness, though, tells a deeper story of the people affected. Over 91,000 Florida schoolchildren experienced homelessness during the year before the pandemic began. According to data from the US Department of Education, of those children 11,000 spent their nights in what have become shelters essentially motels. That is more than any other state except California, which has a much larger population than Florida. Andrew Ross spent time among Floridians staying in run-down extended stay motels in the Orlando area to study the housing crisis. He joined people without any home in encampments, often barely hidden from daily commutes. He wrote about it in his new book, Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing.
1: The people I spent a lot of time with in Central Florida were were folks who were living in motels, budget motels, uh, single rooms. And some of them had large families with domestic pets living in a single room. This is not uh, unique to, uh, to Central Florida. There are millions of people across the country who are living in budget motels. They've become a default housing choice for folks who have been priced out of uh, rental and homeowner markets. And there's a very broad spectrum of people living in those motels. I mean, families who were evicted from foreclosures or elderly and retirees uh, who are trying to live off government checks and a lot of snowbirds, permanent snowbirds now very rich spectrum of humanity that I found living in the motels. And one of the reasons why the motel option is uh, is affordable is because you don't have to pay first and last month's rent plus a security deposit as you would for an apartment. And in addition, and there are no utilities you have to pay, so there are no overheads, plus... The landlords, basically motel owners have become sort of what I call reluctant landlords. They price the rents just below the market rate for an apartment. It's just affordable enough, but they're still making quite a hefty profit as any regular landlord might do at market rates.
0: What are some of those weekly rates that the people you lived with and the people that you spoke with for your book, what what are they paying?
1: They're paying uh, in general between $250 and $300 a week and they can pay weekly or monthly but many of them are long-term occupants and in addition they've become a workforce internal workforce for the motel owners in return for a portion of the rent they'll do um, they'll do all the jobs that are required in a property like that landscaping reception work cleaning and so on and so forth so the landlord benefits from having discount labor force in their own property.
0: A form of servitude, would you call it? Um,
1: I, I, not a term I use, but it, it definitely is a captive workforce <laughs> um, living on site, as it were.
0: For those individuals and those families, what are their sources of income to come up with that that $1,200 a month in rent for a motel room?
1: Well, a lot of folks are in full time employment. A lot of tourist and hospitality industry workers, a lot of Disney workers I found living in motels, cast members, others, you know, trying to make ends meet in the informal economy or through casual work, government assistance. It's a struggle for most of them, you know, to make the rent. I did find people who, could have afforded to live in apartments, but decided that they wanted to live in the motels for one reason or another. They, fa- they find it quite um, quite gratifying to have that mix of people as neighbors. And there is a large informal economy. There's a drug economy. There's a sex work economy that is also very active in the motels.
0: An informal economy, uh, an illicit economy, certainly with those activities you just mentioned.
1: Yes, yes, Absolutely. You know, people taking advantage of the
0: pain and the hardship. Take us through a hallway or a stairwell of one of those motels that you lived at.
1: There's usually two sides to the motel. On one side, the motel owner, landlord, is still hoping to attract uh, nightly guests uh, who are vacationing. So that's a
0: vanilla side of the whole, the motel. What do you mean by vanilla side?
1: You know, they, they, they're they tourists, basically. They're tourists who don't have particularly colorful lives, and they're just passing through. And so they're not particularly interesting as occupants from the point of view of someone like myself as a reporter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Understood. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the other side that what has more interest.
1: The other side is more human interest because they're, you know, they've become more or less permanent homes for people. And there's a lot of social bonds there among neighbors. There are cookouts. There is a a high degree of, I wouldn't say necessarily social harmony, but social networking. And there's also a a degree of mayhem because there are hustlers and pushers and um, people, as you say, involved in the illicit. illicit economy, who prey upon the the occupants and to some degree also run protection rackets with the tenants on that other side of the motel.
0: There have been a number of documentaries. There's been a feature-length film, a fictional take on this motel living in central Florida. Walk along the corridor with us. What would we experience with you if we visited one of these locations and Uh, walked along that hallway? What would it look like? What would it sound like? Who would we meet?
1: The hallway is important because these are exterior corridor motels and they're no longer considered uh, marketable within the hospitality industry. So they're a little dysfunctional. But the exterior corridor means that um, people spend a good bit of time sitting out there in the corridor uh, there's very little room in their own rooms. The, the, the corridor is often full of people sitting in chairs or leaning over the banisters. If they're not working or it's after hours, it can be quite crowded. Uh, there are kids who obviously take advantage of the corridors to, to roll along there in, in their skateboards or, or rollerblades. And there's also a, you know, a certain amount of, um, as I said, mayhem. There are people who are addicts who are often in, in these rooms and, uh, in, and they don't they're in pretty bad shape. If they're visible on the exterior corridor, you can you can tell that they're suffering.
0: Introduce us to Melissa and Randy Warren. You write about them in your book. They're one of the
1: couples that I met fairly early on. They bought a single-family home in Point a growth community south of Orlando. They had an adjustable mortgage, a balloon-type mortgage, and uh, like many people uh, during the housing crisis, they uh, they, they found themselves uh, incapable of making the payments. They were evicted, foreclosed on, so they were spending time in the motel where I stayed initially. They had a couple of kids. And uh, they were trying to make ends meet. The mother uh, had part-time work at Disney. The father was a a labor construction sites. They felt they didn't really belong there. They felt as if they were middle-class and they were just passing through. But like so many people in their uh, situation, they've been there for several years and were looking to move up, but hadn't been able to do so. I actually ran into the mother a few years later towards the end of my time there and she remembered me and, and uh, she said that they had, they broken up and um, the pandemic had just hit them really, really hard. And I, I, I could tell that she was, she'd become homeless. She was pushing a supermarket trolley cart around the back of a Walmart. And I knew there were communities living in the woods back there. So I figured that's where she was shacked up. That's a fairly typical trajectory from, you know, middle class, single family home to the motels, and then to the encampments in the woods. A lot of folks are following that trajectory.
0: That's Andrew Ross, author of Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. Ross will be participating in the Miami Book Fair later this month. You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Each Monday, we examine stories and hear voices of people shaping South Florida's economy. Still to come on this program, finding solutions to address housing affordability and its consequences in Florida.
1: Florida has a history of rising to challenges and coming up with uh, innovative responses.
0: I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for your support. Florida has not had a state agency directly involved with managing real estate development growth for a decade. The Florida Department of Community Affairs was dismantled in 2011 after the state legislature passed and then Governor Rick Scott signed into law a bill reorganizing the agency, setting a new direction for how the state would manage demands of a growing population and real estate development. It undid many of the rules that had been in place since 1985, when Florida's law-governing development was seen as the toughest in the nation. Easing restrictions on development and builders has not addressed the housing problem, though. Andrew Ross first visited and studied Florida's housing market in the late 1990s when he spent a year living in Celebration, near Orlando. Celebration was designed and built to be the quintessential American small town, or at least Disney's version of one, That makes sense since Disney built the town. Only a few years later, though, a private equity firm purchased the town center. Four years ago, some residents sued, claiming mismanagement and neglect. Ross returned to Central Florida to look deeper into what he calls Florida's housing crisis. He's the author of the new book, Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. The subtitle of the book is The Failure of American Housing. What has failed, Andrew?
1: The housing crisis is quite complex and there's no simple remedy, but overall, I'd say what has failed is the total reliance of our housing delivery system on market-based means and relying entirely on private builders and developers to step up and produce affordable housing, which they really have never done for low-income populations but now that the housing crisis has moved up into the middle class portions of the population, the challenge is even more more serious. I would say we have to, at this point, be looking at non-market alternatives in a serious way. The Biden administration, in response to the housing crisis, uh, issued a plan last month. They want to build 100,000 new affordable homes over the next three years. They want not to repeat the mistakes made by the Obama administration, which sold off a lot of foreclosed homes to private equity firms after the housing crash. And instead they want to prioritize the the sale of foreclosed homes to nonprofits and, and community developers. So at least that's a step in the right direction. It's a step in the direction of social housing. We need to have a much larger commitment to that direction in the upcoming years, or else we're going to see housing prices continue to spiral.
0: In the 1930s through the 1960s or 70s, we did see public investment in public housing. We've seen a number of those developments torn down or uh, really fall into disrepair. I'm thinking of Cabrini-Green, for instance, in Chicago, the famed public housing uh, development there on the near northwest side, uh, even here in Miami, the with the so-called pork and beans public housing complex which is undergoing a public-private partnership redevelopment. what were those mistakes made two generations ago, a generation ago that need to be front of mind with the kinds of policy prescriptions that you're talking about here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say in New York City, where I live, the public housing program is fairly healthy. It's in great demand. It's very popular. We haven't seen those demolitions. We have seen the private-public formula being encouraged and adopted in some of the projects. But overall, uh, in general, if you if you look at the record of, of public housing in this country, the, the failure really was in the failure to properly invest in it. It was, was not well built, not well maintained, and it didn't put uh, the actual dwellers at the center. It's a very top-down program, the public housing delivery program. I feel that if public housing programs are gonna restart again and be revived, and, and I, I hope they will because we desperately need them, that the, the dwellers, the occupants will be at the center Uh, which is to say that they should have some participation and some say in how these buildings are planned and designed, rather than just be seen as clients, as passive clients. Because as we know, households come in all shapes and forms these days. They don't correspond anymore to single family, uh, nuclear family type of household. And so we need to see housing forms, even in public housing, that correspond to that, but really do actually meet the needs of people rather than assuming that the the planners and the builders know in advance what the needs of the tenants
0: will be. Andrew, let me ask you about another voice in this, and that's the role of private employers, private companies who are employing a local or regional workforce. What role do they play in this, do you think?
1: Well, there's been there's been a, a lot of um, a lot of scrutiny on the West Coast of uh, of high tech companies who've you know been Silicon Valley in California. Yeah, in California,
0: yeah, even Seattle too, right?
1: In Seattle with Amazon, they've been blamed for rising rents in their backyard, and whether fairly or unfairly, they have. Step forward with billion dollar campaigns, which I feel are longer on PR and shorter on philanthropy than, than they should be. But at least they're responding with the large service sector industry giants, you know, like Walmart or Disney. There is no expectation that these employers have any responsibility for the housing needs of their employees. Disney in particular has a has a very dismal record of responding to affordable housing needs and affordable housing provisions in Central Florida because it's the, the largest single site employer in the country there. They've been successful in keeping wages really low. And, There are certainly things that the company could do. They have land that's available that could be uh, used for affordable housing. But uh, uh, so far, we really haven't seen much of a response from them. I find that particularly irresponsible given the chronic housing needs in, in the region.
0: The challenges of the affordability of housing in Florida have existed for decades. Florida, many years ago... Earmarked certain state revenue for housing, a housing fund called the Sadowski Housing Fund, named after the uh, supporter of that, um, who was from South Florida. What's different this time around, Andrew, as this housing crisis has turned into an emergency, as you call it?
1: Well, as far as Tallahassee goes, I don't think we've seen much change at all in the prevailing mentality. The tragedy or the farce every year of sweeping the Sadowski funds for other operating budget costs, which, you know, went on for the most part of a decade. I think there's been there's been a, a cosmetic change. I think the, the legislature is allowing some of those funds now to be put Correct. into affordable housing. Correct. But it's a it's a drop in the ocean. The bigger issue is that Florida is one of the many states that have preemptive laws that prohibit rent controls. In addition, prohibit uh, inclusionary zoning provisions that local governments could pass. What are those? Those would... um, Well, an example would be that uh, a developer would be allowed to build a slightly bigger footprint or a slightly higher building on condition that they made available some affordable housing as part of that development That's inclusionary zoning. It's a program that hasn't been all that effective in New York City, but it's actually been tried. And as I say, its impact will vary from location to location. But these are tools, basically, that uh, local authorities and local planners could use to make housing more affordable, but they are barred from doing so because of these preemptive state laws. And this in spite of the fact that counties in Florida are supposed to have a certain amount of home rule and a certain amount of autonomy from Tallahassee.
0: How does Florida strike a balance between the inevitable growth... The demand, population moving to the area, people looking to invest in the sunshine in Florida that's been going on since the uh, 19th century, and the constrained supply thanks to the geography that we have here, particularly on the peninsula.
1: It's a big challenge, but, you know, Florida has has a history of rising to challenges and coming up with uh, innovative uh, responses. If you think about the period in which uh, Florida's growth management policies, for example, were very effective, they were pretty much at the forefront in national terms the growth management policies pioneered here in this state. They have been cut back quite severely over the last decade as the political composition in Tallahassee shifted. But if you look at programs like that, including sort of generous programs of land conservation, you can see that the state is capable of innovative responses. So from the point of view of many New Yorkers, Florida is seen as a basket case when it comes to such things. But uh, people who look more closely at the record can see that it's not entirely the case.
0: That's Andrew Ross, author of Sunset Blues, The Failure of American Housing. He's also a professor of social and cultural analysis at New York University. He'll be participating in the Miami Book Fair later on this month. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.